Hello and welcome to the fourth ever episode of the Gen Z Mafia podcast. This is the show where you get a glimpse into your amazing community of builders. And for today's show, Raul interviews Tyler Cohen, an American economics professor at George Mason University. He is also the co-host of the economics blog, Marginal Revolution. Tyler Cohen is an incredible professor and a legendary builder. So we're really excited to share the conversation with him, with you. So, extremely happy to have you here with Tyler for those of us joining. Tyler is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he also co-authors Marginal Revolution and has a few books on the bleeding edge of economics research. One of those is The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. And he's also frequent at podcasts, writes blogs, and opinion columnists at uh, Bloomberg and other leading newspapers. So happy to have you here. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, so we, we'll essentially start with what, what got you here? How, how did you start with your interest in economics and like what are the core thesis that attracted you a lot? How did you became a teacher and what are the things that still motivate you in economics today? I think the first big event of my life professionally is that I was a chess player. I was a chess prodigy starting at age 10 and I played very seriously for about five years. And I think a lot of the lessons I learned I learned first from chess. And uh, one lesson from chess is you can win. Like as a kid, I started beating adults. So that gave me a lot of confidence. But another lesson you can learn from chess is that you can lose. And that's in some ways a more important lesson. So you realize you have to absorb feedback. And if you're not good at being honest with yourself, you'll just keep on losing. And in chess, there are very few excuses. So those like two key lessons, I think really have stuck with me. But, you know, at some point, I think I, I was 13, 14, I realized this chess thing, I mean, it, it sucks would be the literal way to put it. It's hard to earn a lot of money. It's very competitive. No one gives you health insurance. It's like doing a startup where like everyone fails, but two or three people. So I thought, well, I need to, you know, do some other thing. And then I thought about philosophy and economics. And then like by 14, I was pretty set on economics. It just seemed a lot more practical than philosophy. So I took the methods I had used to study chess, which had a lot of good feedback properties, and applied those to economics. So right now, recently I turned 59. So for 45 years, just I've been like training full time. And I do think of it as a form of training, the way a professional pianist would practice scales or a gymnast would train. I think many more people should apply sports metaphors to what they do and just ask like, how am I training now? And if you didn't do any training today, uh, probably your day was wasted. I'm not saying you do only training, but I think that's important. You wanna be on this curve of compounding returns. So speaking on that time period of your life, you mentioned 14 years old. So you you have sort of an interesting upbringing that you've expressed in certain podcasts. For example, you talked about an Eric Weinstein podcast, The Portal, where you said basically you had the test scores to get into some top colleges, but you chose to go to George Mason, you said, because you hated dorms. But beside the point, you chose a sort of unorthodox uh, path to where you are today. You eventually went to Harvard for your graduate studies, but you went to George Mason and you're still there today at your alma mater. So I guess the question that I'm wondering that I think would be really important to the people of the Gen Z Mafia because a large chunk of our demographics are sort of the 16 to 18 year olds who are sort of starting on their road to considering going to college, all those types of decisions. How, how would you advise people in that age range considering you were around that time when you started focusing on economics? It's hard to give general advice. I think my decision to go to a lower quality school, it was a kind of stupid arrogance. One thing, I just wanted to live in an apartment and own a car and be a human being with a life. That was like number one priority to me. But I also thought if I had time to my own, I could do something more important with that time, like the credentials Princeton or Harvard would give me. So I was kind of an early dropout without dropping out. And it ended up working out really well. But it's one of these, I'm always terrified 
terrified to tell people that they might copy it. So I'm a kind of dropout, but I don't think most people should drop out or I don't think most people should not go to Princeton. So I just had the sense that if I was going to play the compounding returns game, to kind of waste four years jumping through hoops only to get a credential, I guess I was just sort of pissed me off. I didn't want to do it. Do you think that your life would have turned out differently if you had gone to Princeton or Harvard? I think it would have ruined me because it would have been all these status games in front of my eyes. And instead, I lived a much more hermit-like, monk-like existence where I could engage in these like decades-long investments. And sort of becoming very well-known happened to me much later in my career and is typical in my field. But I had like this 25-year period of just training in a way that other people would sort of get famous at age 29 and then go off and they would be famous. They would do very well. A lot of them, in some sense, kind of stopped there. And I was able to avoid that. I think in some incohate way, I, I saw that early on. That it would be better for me. So during that 25-year period where you were training, and that kind of can, can be taken sort of nebulously, what, what you mean by training per se? I mean, training is romantic and it has all these sports metaphors, but what, what do you particularly mean? Like, what does training look like for an eco economist? Well, I wanted to learn everything possible about economics, about the world's cultures, about all of the world's music, about the world's artworks. I wanted to learn German and Spanish. I wanted to travel and see as much of the world as I could. I've been to about 100 countries, and many of them multiple times or, you know, with some real time there. And I wanted to do all those things, and I wanted to read all of the great classic books of the Western and sometimes Eastern canons. And that was much more of a focus than like trying to become famous. And that's highly unusual. It's not really what any other economist or even like sane person would do. I mean, I can see now why you've given people the emergent ventures to do nothing but travel the world. I guess that sort of makes sense now with that context. I'm a big fan of travel grants and the best grant I ever got in my life I received, I guess it was 1984, and it was just to spend a year in Europe, Eastern Germany, traveling around. And that so fundamentally changed my life, improved my outlook, broadened my horizons. That was just phenomenal. And I just got free money. I didn't even have to write like a one-page progress report. And it must have looked like a stupid grant, but it, you know, someone there did the right thing. So you I guess you want to pay it back for people who might be the you of today, I guess, is sort of what you're thinking there. So I guess we, that took us down the path of Emergent Ventures. Can you, can you share the story of like what inspired it, what started it, what, why does it exist today? Not sort of its purpose, but like what was the story for its inception? Those of you who don't know, the one sentence summary is that Emergent Ventures gives out grants to unusual ideas, talented individuals, sometimes small grants where you, you couldn't apply to a foundation to get it things that are too weird to be considered elsewhere, and they don't have to be profit-making. It is truly about giving away the money. So I actually was doing work myself on progress studies, a paper that later became my paper with Ben Southwood. And I tried to apply to a foundation for a grant to support what we were doing. And I wrote a proposal, and they gave me feedback, which was like super intelligent highly detailed, did a bunch of things I wanted to do. And I realized the amount of time it would take me to do those things, I could spend that same amount of time and give some talks and earn as much money as they were going to give me. So it just seemed to me in that moment, something about the application process is broken. And I designed an application that essentially can be filled out in an hour. Uh, and then you just get simple yes or no and no other barriers and only one layer of decision-making. No refereeing, it never asks, you have a degree, it never asks for a CV, it never asks for references. So to give different people a chance. That was the genesis and I went to Peter Thiel. <clears throat> I thought, well, this is a kind of a weird idea. It might appeal to Peter. And I asked Peter for a million dollars and he said he would give me a million dollars if I could raise $4 million. So I set out to do that. 
And since then, Emergent Ventures has had some other offshoots like Fast Grants. And the whole thing has raised a total, mm, I guess now like of over $60 million. Some of it devote, a lot of it devoted to COVID work, but it's been from that point of view, uh, very successful as a model. A lot of people feel there's something wrong with the grant process. What, what, what specifically led you to those sort of like throwing off the old, old structures of how things get done? What, why specifically those things are you throwing off as far as like no CD, very sort of at base value, almost unstructured? Why, why are you trying to remove the structure? Well, look, CDs are valuable, right? There's a reason why they exist, but the people with great CVs, like let them go get their Rhodes Scholarship, right? There's plenty of programs for them. Let them go to Princeton. Let them do whatever. I'm more looking for the weirdo who like doesn't want to live in the dorm room or like I, I don't want to say like the person there's something wrong with, but but kind of that. Someone who is a bit of a misfit, uh, square peg and tall, or and someone where other people are a bit uncertain. Like, is this person gonna get? And then I thought, well, I, you know, I'll speak with these people, read their applications, and some of them support. And what do you say to someone who, I mean, obviously the, the face value rational criticism someone might come up with is, well, the people who don't have good CVs or those types of things, maybe they will have a less likelihood of having some kind of positive outcome from it. Or maybe there's basically it's more risky or something like that. What, what, I'm sure you encountered some kind of criticism like that when you were coming up with this type of thing. Well, I hope they're more risky, right? So I don't mind if I have a lower hit rate. I mean, I know how CVs work. I've been, I've been hiring people at a pretty significant level for most of my adult life. And a lot of those people are hired with CVs. It would be very easy for me to raise a sum of money and give out 100 grants to people with good CDs, CVs and they would do fine. But at some level, you just say like, what's the point of that? And like one of the grants we made, you know, was to this company Curative. And we were their first source of money. They needed to buy some materials for COVID testing so they could get an early start on doing COVID testing. This is Celine, probably some of you know her. And I just spoke to her. And like two hours later, we were wiring a pretty substantial sum of money to her. And that was just a chance. And now that company is doing 10% of all you know, COVID testing in the United States. She's awesome. So that was That's a change. Wild. I didn't ask to see her CV. She has the unusual background. There's plenty about it I couldn't even tell you. So even if that's like the only grant we ever made and had hundreds of other failures, like the whole thing would be worth it. So maybe can you share some other cool stories of things you've given grants to? Anything you can publicly share? There's one person, I can't give you the name, but I gave him a grant to write economics in a public way. And he ended up becoming pretty quickly the main economic advisor in a whole nation. Now, this isn't a country where it's not entirely you know, prudent to be seen as getting money from the West, which is not, it wasn't that kind of thing. I'm not like uh, you know, turning him into an agent of some foreign power, but he became a major advisor. A lot of the grants, recently have been to people who are like 17 years old, actually a pretty high proportion of immigrants from India. A bunch of them are doing computational biology. I really don't think any of them will do anything soon. Uh, they're super brilliant, smart, and just like toss them some money here so you don't have to worry about money now. Here's to buy like cloud computing credits so you can do your work. Some of these kids are like 17 working with faculty at MIT and contributing. My view is just like, do it. Uh, David Perel's like writing business got his start with us. Really? Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. I was the first uh, backer of David and basically he didn't have to work for a year and he built the business. Recidive is the nonprofit. They've had a major impact getting people out of jail on the grounds that otherwise they'll catch COVID. And they use data to identify sort of which, who are the people you can release and they won't go off and kill someone. They've been responsible for getting many thousands of prisoners out of jail who shouldn't be there, in many cases saving their lives. 
and we were their first supporter. We gave them really a pretty big chunk of money just so the founder could just quit her job and do it full time. Uh, again, no Vita, had an interview, no questions asked, another female founder thought I would take a chance. And that's worked out very, very well. Plenty of failures in the portfolio. I don't want to name names. Actually, I think one or two will end up surprising me, but I'm sure most of them won't, right? They just don't do that much. A lot of people are kind of slugs. So, okay. So I hear a lot of positive things going on from the emergent ventures. Maybe what are some positive things you're seeing from beyond the emergent ventures that you see in the next decade having outsized material benefit to society? Well, having done all this work, and you know, there's an offshoot of emergent ventures called Fast Grants, which is just COVID related. And we were the early, really first significant funders of the saliva direct spit test that comes out of Yale. That's what they used for the NBA bubble. That would be maybe our biggest hit there. But I've immersed myself in the biomedical world now for about a year, and I am convinced that is what is breaking the great stagnation, that the waves of biomedical innovation, obviously the mRNA vaccines, they truly work in an amazing way. And you can print up new copies of variants almost overnight. That's just unbelievable. Uh, they probably will have other uses, like even curing a lot of individual cancers. You like produce an individual vaccine for a particular person and give them that vaccine against cancer. There's an anti-malaria vaccine going into a phase three trial that basically people think will work. That will be one of humanity's biggest advances in the last century. Once it's distributed, it is likely to work. Uh, CRISPR is likely now to beat back sickle cell anemia. So we're just seeing this incredible wave all at once of stuff you had read about for 10, 15 years like in Atlantic and Technology Review, but it was kind of this weird, someday this will happen sort of article that's so common. And now it's actually stuff. And that's super exciting to me. I think it's by far the biggest area right now. So well, other, actually was- And green energy you. also, but I would say biomedical first and foremost. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, particularly about the, the Operation Warp Speed. I was planning to ask you about that. Uh, I think Peter Thiel actually, in your podcast and Eric Weinstein's podcast, mentioned that he thought that biotech was the big field. This is before COVID and whatnot, but he, he actually I guess, predicted that one correctly. So what are some things that concern you for the next decade? So you just had the positive side with the negative side. Well, everything, obviously. I don't worry about a lot of the stuff you see on Twitter. Like in my view, politics is always stupid. It's not good that it's stupid. People flip out over its stupidity. I think by far the biggest worry is always nuclear weapons. And people take it for granted because one has not gone off since 1945. But it would be like saying two years ago, oh, we haven't had a pandemic lately. Nuclear weapons can destroy the whole world. You don't have to think the chance the nuclear war is very high. I don't. I think it's pretty low. The thing is, if you just let the clock tick, a low probability event is going to happen. And there's no plan to get rid of those weapons. There's not really even a way to do it, unless you think the bad guys will give them up first, which I really do not think is very likely. So we're stuck with that. And to help countries manage their arsenals so they do not launch by mistake, to me is by far the number one priority. You hardly ever see it on Twitter. Uh, much bigger than climate change, so that is a major issue. And that's what I worry about the most. Do you fear biotech? I know Bill Gates is recently in the past year or so record is talking about how sort of WMDs in the biotech space could, be, could potentially be problematic for the human race. I do, I think it's a little hard to assess how they might be used because handling them is difficult and making sure they don't come back and zap you is difficult. Lunatics so far have not been very good at mobilizing them, but that could change. I think the nuclear weapons worry is a pretty straightforward one. Simply that you have a mistake and someone retaliates 
and it leads to a bigger conflict. I don't think people are just going to wake up angry one morning and all press the button. The risk of mistake is very real. And there are a lot of tense spots on the globe, India, Pakistan, Iran, once they get weapons in Israel, maybe someday, you know, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, US, China, something over Taiwan, a lot of possibilities. So the biotech, I don't at all dismiss, but I'm not sure, I'm more worried, I guess, about something escaping and kind of Russia deciding it's gonna attack some country, you know, with a biotech weapon. Not sure that makes sense for Russia. I mean, what about the potential of a, 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 some sort of insane individual or something like that? I guess in, in theory, if, if every year it gets easier and easier to create something that could kill the entire race, eventually, if it keeps going down that path in the same way that the low probability compounds eventually might happen. Certainly possible. And I do worry about that. I do think it's somewhat lower probability because first, crazy people are bad managers. And you all know how, how bad bad management is. But the other thing is crazy people are typically pretty happy with kind of limited victories. And those limited victories still can be horrible. Like you take Brevik in Norway. I forget how many people he killed. It's some horrifying number, but it's nothing what close about, to like wiping out the world with a pathogen. What about he a Ted Brevik. Sorry? What about a Ted Kaczynski-like character? Again, he was crazy. He was actually pretty effective, highly intelligent. I don't remember how many people he killed, but a small number. And he seemed happy enough to pick off targets. So again, the crazy people, they're not that instrumentally rational. If you wait long enough, you'll get a crazy person who both wants to destroy the world and maybe has some capability. The combinatorial there I think we're a lot more protected against that than we are protected against errors of governments, either bio-warfare escapes or as a launch by mistake. To me, those are like 50 times more likely than the crazy person doing massive damage. And what about deepfakes in particular? Do you see those being particularly bad, not a, not a threat at all? I mean, there's been a lot of people who have sounded alarms, sometimes maybe prematurely at the deepfake and becoming a problem in the long term? Deep fakes, no, I don't worry about that at all. I mean, we've had deep fakes my whole life. They weren't very good. It doesn't matter. I mean, people will believe low quality, stupid stuff. That's not good. Deep fakes now being such perfect quality, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you look at like the January 6th events, people believe so many false things about those. You may not even agree which are the false things. But from any point of view, a lot of people are believing false things. And it's not because of fakes, it's because of lies. So I put that really low on my list of worries. It'll embarrass a lot of people. It'll hurt. It'll be stupid. We'll waste time defending it against it. But no, nah, not, a, not a major problem. Hmm. Okay. I have uh, one particular topic that I don't think I've seen from you anywhere on any public stuff almost ever. But it's kind of surprising considering the field that you are uh, so so much of an expert in. What do you think about crypto? Well, that's such a big question. So neither long nor short crypto, just to give you my personal position. I think Bitcoin as a hedge and store of value is competing effectively with gold. And I think that is more or less permanent. So that is here to stay. And the rest of it, I'm just not quite sure it works. The actual use cases, I don't yet find convincing. And everyone has his or her very complicated story. I've yet to see if consumers really want it. So I guess I'm modestly bearish, but very open-minded and would love to be proved wrong. It definitely sounds so, like you're a little bit more uh, Rahul, did I hear you? Go ahead. I got cut yeah. off what you just said. I'm sorry. Yeah, you were saying something, Carson? Do you want to complete it? Oh, my bad. So it's, I said it's, it sounds like you're a little bit more bullish on uh, Bitcoin than the other cryptos. Well, I think it's proven, right? So it's been around longer. 
Obviously, it has a high value relative to what most people expected. And the story you tell for why it will continue is just people want an asset that's weird. That might only be, you know, way below 1% of their portfolios. Enough of the world does that, and that justifies a high value for it. But that seems to be a thing. It may not last forever. There's no reason to see it going away. And then the rest seems to me highly speculative. So here's a, a little thing that I've been that I think you might have some interesting thoughts on. So if you look at the median or mean home price in 1950, it's about approximately 220 ounces of gold. If you look at the median home price in 2021, it's also approximately 220 ounces of gold. Why do you think that even with all the sort of, I mean, obviously in dollars, it's much higher today, but why do you think that gold it hasn't adjusted at all? And do you think that that's actually symptomatic of a much larger thing? Like, does that play along with your great stagnation sort of thesis? I don't know. I think it's hard to correlate the price of gold with much, except in like the late 70s, early 80s. But keep in mind in 1950, the price of gold is pegged, pegged at you know, $35. And that turned out to be an insanely bad price. We built a whole monetary system on it called Bretton Woods. And that peg collapsed. It was beaten down by speculators. And then pretty quickly, gold went from $35 an ounce. This is now late 70s up to 1980 to 800 an ounce. And people made all these gold fortunes, just like now we have these people rich from Bitcoin or other crypto assets. And that was a huge deal. For a while, gold was a hedge against inflation. Inflation was very high. That period aside, I think it's hard to read all that much into gold prices. There's an industrial demand. There's the cost of producing gold. I don't know what those things correlate with. But for me, it's not a major indicator. Rahul, you want to take over for a couple of questions? Sure, sure. So I had to, I just wanted to circle back a bit to your core thesis around great stagnation and how we're measuring progress and how that's slowing down. So first of all, like just to contextualize that, how, how do you arrive towards that thesis? What kind of attracts you towards that sort of research and curiosity and what are the answers that you've discovered so far? Well, if you look at productivity figures, the rate of productivity growth in the United States has been significantly lower since 1973. And while those numbers were there for everyone to see, no one had actually really pointed out it was a systemic problem until Peter Thiel, Michael Mandel, myself, and later Bob Gordon. So at some point, it just seemed like an obvious thing that we weren't moving forward that much. And there were kind of people, now we would call them populists, on the left wing, on the right wing, they were saying this for quite a while, maybe not even knowing the numbers, just observationally. And they were written off by as cranks. And you know, we beat the communism, a lot of good things happened. Uh, a lot more social liberalism in a good way. But people reject the negative narrative. They just insisted it couldn't be true. The numbers were wrong. We're measuring inflation wrong. It's all these unmeasured gains, you know, some of which is true. But I think when you adjust for all the unmeasured gains, there still was a big slowdown for 40 years. I do now think likely it is over. I don't know for how long it is over just mRNA vaccines are going to give us so much GDP relative to the world where we don't have them and so many lives. So I hope it is over forever. It would be naive to expect that. I think there'll be enough momentum. At least it will be over for a while. Uh, but we've lived through a 40-year period where for productivity, maybe we had a half dozen good years. And that's probably the norm for civilization. Uh, 20th century, it was a kind of outlier. Mm -hmm. So when you say we still don't know, or we still cannot drive a lot of buy-in on the stagnation is happening. And like, that's like a huge question. How are we really measuring progress in a way where we have leading indicators instead of lagging indicators like productivity hours, where you actually get the data and an understanding decades after it 
the damage actually begins so how do you kind of contextualize around what is the right leading indicators of measuring progress and that's both what are the numbers and also what are the macro effects that have historically happened that have led to huge progress in societies and civilizations well the two numbers i put the most weight on first is something technical it's called total factor productivity and that's saying when you account for all the labor hours worked and all the capital invested how much gain is left over that was just due to new ideas that's hard to measure but total factor productivity the other is just the real wage typically at the median the median of course is you know the person in the middle there's a lot of productivity gains the person in the middle should be seeing that automatically like rain falling from the sky even if they're not working any harder or any smarter just over time they should be getting better cars better computers better healthcare and if you look at the real wage at the median until recently you know for men 1969 real median wage was about the same as the like 2015 real median wage that's astonishing mm-hmm. you know women did better they got better educated there was less discrimination that's a great advance it's not really technology typical man was stuck for decades the other thing i look at and this obviously is subjective but just my own lived life experience so i was born in 1962 and if you take away computers and i know that's a big if but a lot of the stuff i use has not gotten much better you know i had a car in 1979 i have a car now my car now is a little better it has a side airbag it's definitely a bit safer and it has a better sound system but it basically still performs the car function i live in a house from 1960 it hasn't had that much in the way of upgrades it works just fine as a house that to me is a kind of stunning indictment you could have a house 60 years old and it's just fine what does that say what if you had a computer 60 years old would that be just fine so i think you know as peter thiel has said the gains we've seen are in such a limited area uh growing area but nonetheless limited a lot of life hasn't gotten that much better so tagging off that you are in some at least basic sense in academia do, what part of the i don't really necessarily want to use the word blame but sort of blame for the great stagnation that maybe recently has sort of ceased but at least the great stagnation that happened from 1973 till recently what what share of that blame do you think academia i don't think that much i do think current academia is broken in some ways and our scientific research institutions are far too bureaucratic I think the fundamental reason for the slowdown is that earlier we had what's called a general purpose technology which I'll kind of call electricity but it's like electricity combined with power machines and we did everything we could with it we built cars we built planes we had radio we had all of the follow throughs from cars and planes and radio and more eventually we got to the point where like electricity fossil fuels powerful machines we had done with them what you could and we're just left with marginal improvements which we continue to make like my car is safer it doesn't ever get flat tires my old car got a flat tire every now and then so the exhaustion of this former system now we're trying to replace it with a new system which you could call broadly like the internet and the internet has not yet given us gains comparable to what the old system gave us i think it will and i think a lot of the gains in biotech come from the internet and cloud computing and scientists being connected so i'm very bullish on the internet but i sometimes say date it's done less for us than most people think forthcoming it probably will do more for us than many people think 
So do, what, what do you take on the cities? For example, Balaji has um, publicly said that he thinks the internet is the new San Francisco, whereas some people have said Miami, Austin, other places like that. Do you, do you sort of tend into the bucket with the internet at the new San Francisco? I'm not sure what he means. And I love Balaji, but he does sometimes exaggerate. I would say this, I'm very, still very bullish on the Bay Area, where I suspect many of you are. And it will come back, and it will come back soon. I can't actually say I'm so bullish on San Francisco, the city. The city is quite small, as you know. So I think the city is just too poorly run. The whole set of stuff that's out there is going to keep on going, and it will be there and still flourish. That's where the talent is. I've spent a lot of time in these other cities, and I like them, and I think we'll do better. Austin, Miami, Denver will attract more people, you know, great for them. They don't have the universities. They have cultures pointing in other directions, like Miami. I love Miami culture. I love it more than I like Northern California. That's bad educational system. It's kind of party culture, a bunch of other things. It's just not the right place to be the next center. So I'll say competitors catch up a bit most bullish about you know southern england you know southeastern england if i had to pick one by far and now the bay area will remain intact and a lot of people will go back so okay this next question comes in two parts if you were made the benevolent dictator of both san francisco and the united states as a whole so answer those two separately what would you do if you were made in everyone it's a benevolent dictator so you're not overthrowing some power or something, but if that was your position, what would you change and what would you do? Well, I think I could make vast improvements in San Francisco. There's so much low hanging fruit. First, I would enforce the law. Second, I would open the schools. Third, I would stop the craziness. Fourth, I would start sounding like the Miami mayor. And fifth, I would do things with taxes that uh, would make the city a place that makes sense again. That I'm pretty sure I could do. I think it's just destructive what is happening now. If I'm benevolent dictator of the United States, I think it's very hard to make major improvements. Uh, in the short run, I would, you know, approve the AstraZeneca vaccine, cheap frequent testing out there. We'd have a much quicker bounce back from the pandemic. Even a benevolent dictator, you can't go too far from public opinion. And uh, it's not that I think we're so optimized, but steer a beast like the United States, I don't know, I think it would be a very hard job. I don't think I would make huge improvements. I would try to, but I think that the problem would defeat me. Someone asked about Southeastern England. I just mean London, Oxford, and Cambridge, and that scientific research triangle, biomedical for AI, for finance, for entertainment, for everything. It's a, just a tremendous part of the world. And it's still undervalued. And it's sort of the capital of the original seat of the West, which is Europe. And uh, I think real estate prices already show this. I'm super bullish on it. But I don't think I know anything the real estate market doesn't. People there get what's going on. How much do you think? Uh, the stagnation of progress is far more dependent on kind of sociological architecture of the society, as in how the government is organized, how the culture is organized, how the funding is organized, how the institutions are built up. And like so far, what do you think is like kind of an optimal sociological configuration to have the highest progress, the fastest progress? Well, I would start with culture and the family. So maybe policy... It's the transmission belt. One of my views about the world today, I think India and Indian immigrants will be by far the biggest carriers of innovation. First, there's a lot of them. There's also a tie to the English language. I think at least in many Indian families, not all, the parents expect something from the kids and uh, will kick their butts if the kids underperform. I think what's happening in India with Indian migrants today, it will go down in history as being like Central Europe in the time of Einstein and von Neumann. 
I think it's a magical time for that part of the world. Uh, again, a lot of it will happen in England, Canada, US, totally magical time. And all the pieces are coming together, like people and families being hungry enough to succeed, not complacent, able to get good enough training that they can do something. And that to me is very, very exciting. Got it, got it. But apart from that, how do you see like the overall societal configuration to push for the highest progress? So kind of the opinion that is shared by a lot of people is that in the institutions that work for the US and other countries, there has been just a lot of bad maintenance where you've given a lot of veto power to a lot of people without actually caring for who deserves that and who is actually pushing for progress. Similarly, for not just for media and government, but also in academia, in industries. So like maybe that's a bad state, but like what's the optimal configuration for the society, for policies, for funding, and for integrations within institutions that actually optimizes for just progress? Well, I think you now we should have much, much more deregulation, much less bureaucracy. I don't think that will change. I think it's more like a race where the internet gives you these benefits, like scientists can communicate quickly. Founders can learn more quickly from each other because of the internet. Then all these other things are getting worse. Those other things in history have typically been really bad. So... You know, there is not a golden age here. And the positive forces right now are very strong. That said, I think most innovation will come from a few parts of the world. There's US, there's Southeastern England, bits and drabs of activity in Europe and China. And it's actually, and then people who are Indian often working in other places, sometimes in India. I think that's it. And that's something astonishing about that. I think it shows how many things you need to have coming together. And so much of progress is driven by immigrants. Most people are slugs. So no country own people really quite enough, except even China, I would say not enough. Immigrants don't want to live in China, really. So where can attract immigrants? The US, Southern England, Canada attracts immigrants the real movers and shakers want to come to the US. I just think innovation is going to become actually much more concentrated than it's been. How do you see US-China relations going in the next decade? I'm not sure I have a useful prediction. I do follow this closely. I've been to China about 15 times to many different regions. It's one of the two or three most important questions in the world. I have Chinese friends I talk to it about pretty frequently. I think the main question is, will China make a move on Taiwan? And I fear it will in the next 20 years. And it seems to me that could cause the current world order to collapse to a much more chaotic state. Because I'm not sure the US would defend Taiwan or even could defend Taiwan. If we don't defend Taiwan, then all our other allies say, well, look, they didn't stand up for Taiwan. What are they going to do for me? And you'll have a lot of countries you know, wanting to build nukes. I don't know, hard to predict. That one feels very bad to me. It's one of my biggest worries. Is Taiwan particularly important because of TSMC, or is that one of the big pieces? Partly that, but I think the main thing is Chinese leadership believe it's theirs, whether you agree with them or not. Chinese citizenry believes it is theirs. And they say as clearly as possible, they're determined to take it back. And there's 110% reasons to think they're fully sincere. It doesn't mean they'll do it in a suicidal way. They really want it. They regard it like as if you know, the Soviet Union had conquered Chicago and we had a chance to take it back. We would do it, right? That's how they think about Taiwan. So super, super dangerous. And, you know, the chips thing is much worse. <clears throat> if over time you think China will succeed with high quality chips in less than 10 years, and I'm not sure at the margin 
that's a reason to take over Taiwan. That could become a non-issue, ESMC. It's, it's not a non-issue right now. But I don't think China will invade right now. Uh, do you also think that stifling relationships between countries actually push for a lot of progress? The way it's happened in wars and even cold wars, do you think India-US rivalry could like push a ton of progress? And like that could be like a integral reason for that. I think crises push progress. Wars are a kind of crisis. I'm not sure right now it's the kind of progress we need. So if US-China relationship heated up, it was more rivalrous, like we would invent much better military drones. This might have spillovers. The progress we need is like cheaper housing, better healthcare, kind of more daily life stuff. And I'm not sure we would get that from having a more conflictual relationship with China. Got it. A question that has like kind of gotten up again and again is the problems that we really, really face, whether it's housing, whether it's healthcare or the quality of education, all of those are fundamentally broken because of bureaucratic reasons. And like those all have like this one fundamental characteristic where the people who are in power or people who are kind of in, in charge are just not incentivized enough to solve those problems. And all of those have become like political problems instead of scientific or like hard technological problems. So like what's, what's the way to get out of those? For some, your technological progress might help. So for housing, maybe you could have things like Hyperloop, which actually solve it in a technical way. But ultimately, this is the big problem that we're hitting on where bureaucracy and politics is kind of taking hostage of most of the resources or important parts of human life and like actually leading to a turn of stagnation. What is like the way out? Well, I'm not sure there is a way out. So when it comes to housing, I think we're solving housing right now. And partly we're solving it with Zoom and partly we're solving it with people moving to Nashville. I do think at some point building houses will be much cheaper, but that's already not the main problem. So just people using cheaper land and making it work. I see that now. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's going to succeed. I don't think we'll ever like protect the NIMBYs in San Francisco. That's another thing I would do as mayor, by the way, is uh, like if you let me control Oakland, open up all of Oakland for anything and everything. That would be so much fun. Education, you know, I'm a big critic of public schools. I believe in school choice. I'm quite libertarian, including on that issue. At the end of the day, I think the real problem is families. If you go to a school district in this country where families are conscientious and really teach their kids that education matters, the public schools are pretty good. So that's a cultural problem, ultimately. I don't think we'll solve it. I think a lot of individual families will and have. But in this country, it will always be highly mixed. We're highly unequal and very chaotic, and we don't all have our act together. I just don't see that changing. This country has always been that way. In a way, it's a miracle it's not worse. Healthcare, I think we'll make a lot of progress on, and we have already. I don't just mean on the science side, just things like cheaper retail clinics, like can I go to CVS or urgent care? and get treated right away at an okay price. I think that will get much better in the next 10 years. Hardly a solution, but again, I can see a lot of progress there. Education's the tough, toughest one. So if I have to characterize all of these three problems and see what's the fundamental connection, I would kind of articulate that for housing, the mayors or the people who actually own a lot of land are benefiting with increase in prices and they would definitely want that to continue irrespective of newer people coming in and how inconvenient that actually works for the city. Similarly, for healthcare, people who are actually in charge of the licenses and medicines and sales contracts are going to have, like, are going to be incentivized to have higher prices irrespective of how that translates into patients and hospitals and actual curing of diseases. Secondly, thirdly, education. People who are 
in charge of schools and colleges, which are very few and which have a great brand, will be incentivized to not allow large scale education to be possible because that lets them earn far higher fees and irrespective of how much debt college students have to take. So fundamentally, it's becoming an incentive problem where the goal for any capitalist or a greedy person is to attain the resources, to attain the licenses, to attain the positions, and then have all the incentives to not actually serve the very purpose of the institutions. And that is essentially leading to the death of institutions or the great stagnation in the major areas. So what is the out here? Do you essentially kill the institutions? Do you find outs in different parts of how the problems can be solved? Or is there a way to attack the core fundamental part of what's actually bringing a lot of stagnation? I think you work around them. So the failing institutions, I'm not sure you can fix. Maybe some will fail, <clears throat> but like the internet is a pretty new institution and it does education, even though we don't always call it that. It does some healthcare too. Uh, it doesn't really give people a place to live. But uh, cheaper housing is the easiest of those problems to fix, as I said. And I think education and healthcare will stay highly uneven. But the people doing well will just have much, much better options than they used to. They already do. So again, I think you can be optimistic about the whole picture while being realistic about bottom third. Even for internet, you're going to have big tech who's going to monopolize a lot of attention or a lot of a lot of flows towards attention and then just inset, they're just incentivized to grab attention or grab cash in whatever way is possible and monopolize the entire market, which is again like the same characteristic for the internet as an institution. So the, the core funding big tech is very monopolistic. You know, something like TikTok competes very well against Facebook. So oh. I think it's a very rivalrous market where you can easily lose your position. And these are all vulnerable companies. And if they dominate a market space for a long time, like Google, it's because price is zero and quality is pretty high. Got it. Got it. The only question that I am coming towards is, do institutions in general have a lifetime on their ascendancy, they're becoming mainstream, and then the deaths of institution is kind of inevitable? Is there a way to prolong that period? Is there a way to not have that inevitable death of, of traditional institutions? Well, Microsoft has had a second life. So I think with the right leadership, you can do it. But IBM did not. Amazon, which will stay a great company, but they're very much a mature mainstream company at this point, as far as I can tell. Same with, you know, Google slash Alphabet, whatever you want to call it. So it's hard to stay dynamic for very long. It's okay, though. There's free enough entry in most areas. I think uh, Emma has a question or two that she'd like to ask. Oh, yeah. I have a few. So I'm curious about your opinions on meme stocks and what just happened with Wall Street bets. Oh, you're muted. Let me first tell my wife to turn down the food blender. Hold on. Okay. Okay, now I'm back. Sorry. I have opinions on that. They're, they're not popular with a lot of people. So I think the people who organize the buying are basically market manipulators, and they're breaking the law or coming close to breaking the law. I wouldn't say that bothers me. Uh, if they're doing that, I feel a bit they have what's coming to them, that Robin Hood cut off their trades. It's because Robin Hood had to post collateral 
to meet what are essentially clearinghouse requirements. I know a lot of people want to believe there's something sinister behind that. With Robinhood, with Citadel, probably not. It's a pretty normal thing to happen. And I don't think it affects much in the real world. To me, it's a story that if you ignore it, there's a lot of emotion and you're not ignoring anything really that important. I do think it's generally important that people use the internet to organize small groups, like with January 6th. And this is another example of that. But the thing itself, I don't think is that important. And sort of everyone involved behaved badly. And it's not a story where there are heroes. That's what I think. Okay, what do you think about memes generally and the internet being like memes, they're most powerful when they're used to mobilize people. And the internet is a place where massive amounts of people can mobilize together. And that's kind of what we saw with GameStop. So what do you think about the future of, of memes and people mobilizing on the internet? Do you think it'll it's be scary. right? I think the internet supports weird. And, you know, frankly, I don't know most of you, but I bet a lot of you are weird, which is great. I'm weird. Internet has helped me. It's helped me because I'm weird. But the idea that on this massive scale, you're boosting weird, it's this untested experiment that you've got to be a little scared by. And you see instances of it, January 6th being the most physically obvious, but just so many things, what people talk about, you know, on 4chan and other sites, maybe it doesn't happen. But I do think there's more of the talk than there used to be. So we're going down this new tunnel. It's going to be weird. It does scare me. I don't know what's on the other side. I wouldn't panic. The world has changed communications media many times before. It's typically been weird. It's often involved a lot of chaos. Boys over some time horizon ended up better off. But look, you're all living in the short run. So it's scary. Yeah. Earlier you said you gave your opinion on the internet and I kind of felt like you were underestimating it potentially because you didn't grow up on the internet and so you haven't seen as much of it. Where do you, how are you personally staying informed about the internet essentially? WhatsApp groups, Twitter, people I know, but I would say this, it's, I think it's very instructive to just look at components of GDP and the tech sector, well, like two years ago, I think it was 7%. It's somewhat higher now. Like 7% is a lot, but it's not the main thing. Healthcare is 18%. Retail sales are enormous. And I don't mean Amazon. I just mean like people going to Walmart. So just GDP accounts, to me, they're a little sobering that the internet is still quite immature. And if you look at higher ed, of course, we use the internet. It's all we do now with pandemic. But in normal times, internet hasn't changed teaching that much. And that's a sign of our bankruptcy, I would say. But I think internet is still an early technology, early stage. Just simple things like, can you email your doctor? Sometimes, but mostly not. Is education organized around the internet? You know, sometimes but typically not. I think it's very early. Retail sales, like is Amazon more important in a sector or is Walmart? If it's not books, typically Walmart wins that by an enormous amount. And then there's stores other than Walmart. So I still hmm. think the internet is overvalued by a lot of people. But I, I would disagree with that since most retail sales, they have internet sides to them like Walmart and delivery is what pretty much everyone started doing with COVID. I think COVID has kind of accelerated the internet because all of these uh, workplaces needed to go remote. All of the schools needed to go remote. People are ordering more than ever. Food delivery, all these gig services like Uber, I completely agree with that. And I think this will be seen as the turning point. But just like a year ago, I don't think internet was doing that much for us. And even like five months from now, like the changes will have been set in motion, but fractions of GDP, it will look still a lot like 2019. 
But I agree with the arrows you're pointing out. And I think this year will go down as the year when like all of you took over. Mm -hmm. Nice. Awesome. Uh, I have- Well, we do want to be, he did well, what, say- he Emma has another question. So the internet is a weird place and it does kind of have places or areas of it that are harder to access and it's weird. And so do you think these barriers to entry are a good thing for it or should it be made more accessible? I think there's a big problem with digital divide and people in rural areas or poor families who don't have high speed internet. Uh, I know the Biden administration is putting up money to help fix that. That's fine. I don't think it's that easy to fix because we're such a big spread out country. Over time, it will be fixed and mobile in the meantime fills in and all that. But I think the issue does deserve more attention. And we need to get more people online in, in very active ways. Do you have to run right now? I think you told Carson. Uh, like if there's another question, I can take it, but I should run shortly. I have another question. I'm sure other people do. My other question is, what are things that you look for for determining if people are worthy of becoming grant recipients? And then I have a follow-up. What do I look for? You know, maybe I'm reluctant to say because people then try to make themselves that way. But first, they should be somewhat weird. Second, they should really believe in what they're doing. Third, they should have some kind of integrity. They should have some kind of selective excitability about their thing. The hardest thing to kind of test for, I think, is a sort of endurance and persistence, which in any short interview process, and they all are short, is very hard to see who has that. And also just courage. There's a lot of people who have like all the other things, but they're just kind of afraid to stick their neck out. And typically those are successful people. They're not like mega successful because they lack courage. So those are some of the things that are important and just this kind of relentlessness and internal motor, I would say. My follow-up question is, what are patterns you see for people who end up being successful after receiving grants? I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you so explain it a little? You have people who receive grants and are more successful, and then you have people who receive grants and are less successful. Is, are there any patterns that you see after receiving the grants, after they've passed the bar to be chosen during the time that passes post-grant receival? I think I usually have a sense fairly quickly how they're going to do. Maybe the best predictor is how good is their pre-existing support network and or can they use the grant to rapidly build a new support network. The people operating outside of all these networks, very hard for them to succeed, even if they're very talented. And that's partly why I think innovation is becoming more concentrated because networking matters more. And that worries me. I think there's something quite unfair about it. And so by definition, all of you here are very well networked. It is deeply unfair and we're losing out on a lot of talent. There's a lot of people just live places. They cannot be well networked. And purely online for most people doesn't quite do it. Yeah, that's why we built Gen Z Mafia. It's because yes, your environment- I'm delighted. You know, I read the New York Times article. I know some of you. I think it's great what you're all doing. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. I guess final question. Is there anything that anyone listening could build to help with progress studies? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, in a way, believe in movements as movements. Like you all have your own internal motors and to like follow those, I think will help progress studies more than trying to steer your motor toward mine. So you, know, you wanna look also talent and people who are like not too respectful in some way. I think that's important. People who are like too relying on role models is a negative. 
Like it may be a positive on average, but for really high achievers, I think it's somewhat of a negative. You want them to psychologically have that ability to break from their role models, put their own stamp on things, I would say. Yeah, this question was prompted because um, someone who wasn't able to make it right now wanted to ask, he has this idea for a progress study API, which is just an aggregator for all data related to progress metrics. I and mean, he's wondering if that would be useful. Probably uh, tell him to uh, apply and or email me, him or her. So now I might be interested. You know, I usually, I'm very much a person first evaluator. So yeah, the idea sounds good. Of course, that's a positive. The person has to like have something or I'm just not going to do it or some, you know, at least in my subjective opinion, they have to impress me and someone who's impressive, you know, I might be willing to fund to do nothing. Nice. Um, all right. Good to see you all. And thank you to the organizers for having me in. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much, Tyler. You with something, you can always try me. My email is public and online. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. Take care and do keep safe. And you know, we're at the turning point of this thing soon. So a lot's going to be looking up. I hope you enjoy it. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.